0: From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Frustrated by the lack of response from the federal government, one African American town in Louisiana, plagued by industrial pollution, is asking an international agency to intervene on the grounds of human rights.
1: A healthy environment is a human right, that you cannot have the right to life if you are surrounded by cancer-causing chemicals and chemicals that can kill you if released in large amounts.
0: Also in Utah, researchers are on the verge of cracking a long-locked code. They think some compulsive human behavior could be
2: genetic. It felt like if I didn't pull my hair, that I was suffocating, and that it was as if I was in a, a pool of water drowning
0: gene targeting the obsessive compulsive and more this week on living on earth
2: stick around
3: support for living on earth comes from the national science foundation and stonyfield farm
0: from the jennifer and ted stanley studios in somerville massachusetts this is living on earth i'm steve Kerwood. A group of citizens from the small Louisiana bayou town of Mossville recently visited the nation's capital, most of them for the first time. They did the kinds of things tourists do. They climbed the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and marveled at the Capitol Rotunda. But they were also in Washington on business, as lifelong Mossville resident Christine Bennett was quick to point out. While she and her group were admiring the White House from Pennsylvania Avenue, she told us that they came to try to save their town from a decades-old deluge of industrial pollution.
3: We're going to do a petition for our, our human rights. And we're going to seek and pray for help that someone will come to the Mossfield community and not just hear us come and see what we're going through. So I would love for the president could have been here while I'm this close to him and ask him to come and visit Mossfield too so he can get a chance to see that while he's breathing fresh air and living well, we're dying over here in Mossfield.
0: But this isn't your typical Mr. Smith goes to Washington tale. The residents of Mossville are taking a new tack in their fight against the poisons in their air and water. They're going past the EPA, past the president himself, to seek help from the Organization of American States, the intergovernmental body that oversees human rights and fair trade in the Western Hemisphere. The folks of Mossville have filed a petition with OAS claiming the United States government is violating their human rights by allowing 14 major industries in their neighborhood to harm public health and welfare. In the past 30 years, the town's largely African-American population has dropped from 2,000 to just over 300, and cancer and other illness rates have soared. Residents have twice the body burden of dioxin as most Americans. Joining me now is Monique Hardin. She's an attorney with Advocates for Environmental Human Rights, a New Orleans based legal group working with the Mossville residents. Hello.
1: Hello, thanks for having me on.
0: Now you're approaching pollution in Mossville as a human rights issue. Why?
1: because it is a human rights issue, Uh, we have a situation where through the United States approval and authorizations, 14 toxic hazardous industrial facilities are operating inside and around the Mossville community where they have contaminated water, they made the air unhealthy to breathe, and they have exposed residents to cancer-causing, hormone-disrupting chemicals, some of which have been found in the blood of Mossville residents. As a result of this industrial development, all through government authorization, the Mossville community is a dying community, and their basic human rights to life and health and racial equality are all being denied.
0: You say Mossville is a dying community. What do you mean?
1: What I mean by that is that uh, historically, Mossville has been a rural community where even the poorest residents were able to live well because of the rich ecological conditions and biodiversity. Today, that is no longer the case because fish are poisoned with industrial toxins, so they cannot be eaten. Um, Waterways um, are very contaminated, and people cannot even grow vegetable gardens and fruit trees like they used to.
0: Now, you have asked the Organization of American States, there's a, there's a task force there, I guess, that considers questions of human rights. You've asked them to investigate the prevalence of dioxin and other contamination uh, in the Mossville area. Um, requesting the help of an international organization to investigate a domestic pollution issue could be viewed as, well, an unusual, some would say, extreme measure. Why do you think that you had to do this?
1: We had to do this because uh, we've been working in the Mossville community for a Three or so years now, to try to figure out how we can make this a, a community that is livable, and finding that our demands for this for a clean environment, a healthy environment have fallen on the deaf ears of uh, the Environmental Protection Agency as well as other public health and environmental agencies and the reason why it 's fallen on the deaf ears with these officials is because the environmental regulatory system legalizes the hazardous development in residential areas, which are often communities of color. Um, And so we don't have any recourse under U.S. system of laws to protect the environment and protect the health of Mossville residents. And so being able to find uh, the Organization of American States and their Commission on Human Rights and – presenting our case to them to say we need your help in promoting and defending the human rights of Mossville residents who, like so many other communities in the United States, are not equally protected. Their rights to health and life and racial equality are being denied uh, by this environmental regulatory system that allows all these toxic facilities to locate in communities like Mossville.
0: Now, you've petitioned the uh, Organization of American States to look into this matter. What powers do they have?
1: The Organization of American States has an Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. And what the Commission on Human Rights uh, does is, one of the things that it does, is it investigates cases of human rights abuses in member countries. There are 34 member countries. The United States is one of them. And by virtue of its membership, the United States is um, bound to uphold basic human rights. And we're talking in particular the human rights to life, health, and racial equality. What the commission does after reviewing the petitions is uh, asks the country where the complaints are uh, lodged to respond. And once the United States responds to our petition, then the commission um, works through a way to trying to settle the problem. One of the things that we've asked the, uh, the commission to do in terms of settling this human rights problem is to um, recommend that the United States provide Mossville residents with health services. We've asked the Commission to recommend that the United States provide relocation for residents who may choose to want to leave Mossville in order to find healthier environments. And we've also asked the Commission to recommend that the United States reform its uh, its environmental regulatory system so that all the aggregate, cumulative, synergistic impacts of all these chemicals and all of these facilities are finally taken into account and safeguards are in place to protect People from being exposed to those dangers.
0: Now, the pollution situation in Mossville, Louisiana, has been well documented. You say to the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, I'm sure to the absolutely. state absolutely to the state of Louisiana and others. Um, What difference can the Organization of American States uh, make uh, if it reviews this and makes recommendations to the same uh, agencies that uh, have, in your view so far, refused to do anything about it?
1: Well, actually, their recommendations would not be going to the agencies. Their recommendations would be going to the United States government which is a lot different, because we have an an EPA that does not have human rights as part of its mission and does not operate with a system of laws or policies that recognize human rights. However, we have a United States government that has signed on to international human rights treaties, has bound itself to international human rights protocols and other mechanisms that the Organization of American States and the Commission enforce and implement.
0: Has the OAS heard other environmental uh, cases involving human rights, not in the United States?
1: Yes, they have. Uh, cases out of Brazil, cases out of Ecuador, where uh, those country governments allowed very destructive developments in mining and oil drilling in particular to occur in such a way that it was creating severe hazards on indigenous tribes who lived in the areas where um, companies believed oil could be drilled or where uh, precious minerals and other natural resources could be mined. Um, and in those decisions, the Organization of American States made a very strong ruling in favor of protecting the environment as a human right.
0: To what extent is your uh, is your venture here uh, geared to get uh, actual legal results uh, versus uh, the prospect of of holding up to the world the United States uh, as having a human rights problem the the shame factor?
1: Well, because this is a human rights petition that's well grounded in international human rights law, we feel that we're making. A case of first impression, but one that 's on solid ground before the Organization of American States around the world. there have been international judicial bodies who um, are uh, whose purpose is to uphold and defend human rights who are beginning to recognize that a healthy environment is a human right, that you cannot have the right to life if you are surrounded by cancer-causing chemicals and chemicals that can kill you if released in large amounts. You cannot have the right to health if those kinds of conditions exist. And so there's a solid body of law and judicial decisions from around the world that really make it very clear that what's happening in the United States, and in particular in Mossville, is a human rights violation.
0: Monique Harden is an attorney for Advocates for Environmental Human Rights in New Orleans. Thanks for taking this time with me today. Thank you. Time now for your comments. Our recent story, Sacrificial Ram, evoked strong feelings from many listeners. In the broadcast, writer Daniel Duane tells of tagging along with a hunter who paid almost $60,000 for a permit to kill an endangered bighorn ram in Baja, California. 90% of the money went towards the preservation of bighorn sheep, but Victor Girard, a listener in western Massachusetts, says this conservation plan needs to be reconsidered.
4: I think we've got to think more about this. Why don't we find rich people who want to keep them alive without hunting them, donate $60,000, and keep the old man alive, let him pass his jeans on till he drops in his drawers.
0: And a listener to WBEZ in Lockport, Illinois, found little solace in Mr. Dwayne's recounting of the actual kill. Whitney Cox writes, Your guest commented that when shot and killed, the ram was in good health, was of a mature age, was among his family, eating his favorite food. What better time to be shot and killed, he asked. I am 54, in good health, and was planning on having dinner at a nice restaurant with my family tonight. I just canceled. Yet plenty of listeners supported the conservation effort. Daniel harris who listens to Philadelphia's WHYY, writes, I would describe myself like Daniel Duane, left-liberal, East Coast environmentalist type. I've never been hunting, and as a younger man had similar stereotypes of the redneck hunter. However, the conservation program described in the story makes perfect sense to me, and I praise the organization, the Mexican government, and residents near the Game Preserve for pulling it off. Roger Abbott of Michigan agreed.
5: I support the uh, hunting for sake of preservation of animals, for preservation of their habitat, like with the big corn sheep program, because when it comes to in- helping endangered animals, the most important thing is to think of this. It's their habitat, stupid. The loss of habitat is the greatest danger to all animals for facing extinction. It's not hunters. It's not the ranchers shooting wolves. It's the preservation of habitat.
0: Also, some of you objected to our interview with writer Ken Lamberton, who wrote a collection of nature essays while serving 12 years in prison for having sex with a 14-year-old girl. Tim Lacey listens to Living on Earth on KQED in Sonoma, California. He writes... Regardless of the merits of his work, I do not think it is appropriate to highlight child molesters on your show. If people want to read his essays and he can find a publisher, that's a personal choice. However, I object to making this man a celebrity. Your comments in our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or write us at 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. You can hear our program anytime on our website at livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. Coming up, if you can't stop washing your hands or pulling your hair, it may be in your genes. Genetics and obsessive-compulsive behavior is next on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Short or tall, dark or light, male or female... Just about everything that distinguishes one human being from another is affected by our genes. Our genetic code is so complex that if it were stretched out in a single line, the DNA that makes up our genes would reach the sun and back hundreds of times. But our DNA is actually more of a tangle, and it once seemed impossible to pick out a single strand, let alone discover its role. But in the late 1980s, Geneticist Mario Capecchi developed a technique called gene targeting that lets scientists find specific genes and change them within living mice. And now researchers at the University of Utah using this technique have engineered a mouse that may help us understand how genes may be directly linked to certain human behaviors. Sherry Quinn reports from Salt Lake City, Utah.
6: Christina Pearson is paying close attention to a certain group of genetically engineered mice at the University of Utah. She believes discoveries recently made there might change her life.
2: When I would pull my hair, I would feel for a certain texture. I would feel for a certain sensation, a certain type of hair. And then when I found the one that worked, it was as if I had found gold and my nervous system would just light up.
6: Pearson has trichotillomania. It's part of a spectrum that includes obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD. Those afflicted are obsessed with pulling their hair out. But Pearson thinks this behavior is part of her inner core, locked into every cell
2: of her body. The urge to pull my hair was as strong as the urge to breathe. It felt like if I didn't pull my hair that I was suffocating. It was as if I was in a pool of water drowning and struggling for air. I tried drinking myself into blackouts because I found that if I could black out and fall asleep, I wouldn't pull my hair. If we could develop an animal model, it might help us make sense and come up with treatments for human beings so they don't have to go through the 30 years of hell that I went through.
6: Researchers at the University of Utah might just have such a model. But in order to understand why this work is happening here, we have to understand the work of a World War II refugee who became an American scientist. Mario Capecchi was born in Verona, Italy in 1937. When he was four, his mother was sent to the concentration camp Dachau for posting anti-fascist pamphlets. Kopecki survived by begging and stealing, Hunger, he says, helped form him. If you are going to survive, things aren't going to work out every time. I mean, you go after a certain source of food, and sometimes things don't work out, and you don't get food that time. And so then you have to persist and try and try again. You have to set your own inner uh, determination, that is to be able to go after things, and sort of a doggedness that is important also for survival. Capecki's mother was released from Dachau five years later. She searched for her now nine-year-old son for over a year and found him ill with typhoid in an orphanage hospital. A few days later, she brought him to the United States, and Kapeki began to thrive. He grew up on a Quaker commune, then went to Harvard, where he eventually came to know the famous biologist James Watson, the man who, together with Francis Crick, had discovered the structure of DNA. If you work in a field where lots and lots of people are working in that particular area, then it doesn't make a big difference whether you do it or you don't do it. That science will be done. And I'd rather work on something that I feel that I can uniquely contribute to. Capecchi taught at Harvard Medical School, but in 1973 he moved to the University of Utah. Colleagues said he was crazy to leave Harvard. But the University of Utah had begun to build a reputation as a gold mine for human geneticists, thanks to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or Mormon Church, which keeps detailed genealogical records of its large families. At the University of Utah, Capecchi spent a decade developing gene targeting. Scientists already knew how to insert altered DNA into cells, but out of thousands of cells, typically only a few will incorporate that altered DNA. The challenge was to identify which ones. And so, if that could happen, then that would allow us essentially the ability to change any gene that we wanted in any way conceivable. Bob Horvitz is a Nobel winning MIT biologist who is well acquainted with Capecchi's work. With Mario, there's now a technology that allows the analysis of any gene in the genome. And it is the difference between night and day? No, it is much more. Than that. It's truly a revolution. It has led to kinds of experimentation that would have been unthinkable not very many years ago. This is the sound of a tiny mouse embryo the size of a grain of rice. Once scientists see which mouse cells have taken up the new gene, they place them into an embryo that will continue to grow into a mouse. They are called knockout mice because a gene has been knocked out and replaced. With a bit of luck, when they grow up, some of these knockout mice will transmit the new gene to their offspring. Kapecki's 13,000 mice are kept in a facility called the Mouse House. They're cared for by a crew of biologists, former veterinary techs, and pet store workers. Fred Beasley and Adine Marston often witness strange grooming behavior, and they too wonder what the research could reveal about ourselves. Some mice like to groom themselves in interesting ways, make neat little patterns on
2: their fur. Mm-hmm. I had a cage where 11 other mice had a little rainbow shape above their left eye, every single one of them, except for the one that was doing the grooming.
6: Watching mice grooming, it's hard to imagine that a single gene could control such a complex behavior. But geneticist Joy Greer, a former graduate student in Capecchi's lab, replaced a normal copy of a gene called Hoxb8 with a defective one. She was expecting to study limb deformities. Instead, she noticed the mice started grooming to the extreme. They stayed awake to do it. It looked to her like a form of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder.
7: Oh, it was totally unexpected. Basically, I noticed that these mice had these huge bald patches, and I had to find out why, and while I was analyzing the videotapes, it became very clear that what was happening is the mice were removing their hair while they were grooming themselves. Hoxb8 is a member of
6: a large family of genes, collectively called the Hox genes, which are mostly known for their role in designing the general body plan, from flies to humans. So finding that a Hox gene could be involved in a behavior was a thrilling discovery. And this, as far as I'm aware, is the only Hox gene that's been implicated in behavior. It's one thing to make comparisons between mice and humans when studying disease. But studying mouse genes to understand human behavioral disorders is new.
7: It's become something that I'm very passionate about. I think that these animals could provide a good animal model of repetitive behaviors. Whether or not it will be directly linked to obsessive-compulsive disorder still remains to be seen. Since mice and humans have
6: nearly identical genes, Greer and Mario Capecchi are now looking at people with the hair-pulling disorder to see if they can find the same gene defect they found in mice. It's unclear how common trichotillomania is. But it's not rare. It seems to cluster in families. Christina Pearson says most hair pullers aren't aware of it in their family history.
2: The problem with a disorder like this is that if your great-grandmother had trichotillomania, you probably wouldn't know it because it's still hard for people to talk about today.
6: In the 1970s, when sufferers dared to seek help, doctors viewed them as psychotic. But now Christina Pearson is proud to be director of the Trichotillomania Learning Center
2: with 32,000 hair-pulling members. It is amazing the stories that I have heard. One father said to me, he said, you know, I was beating my daughter with a belt and she was lying there on the floor and saying, Daddy, it won't help, it won't help. I talked to the mothers of, of young women who have killed themselves, okay, put guns in their mouths because they could get no help. It's now been several years since Pearson has pulled her hair
6: out. She uses medicine, therapy, and group support to fight the urge. Since the late 1980s, gene targeting has spread to thousands of laboratories throughout the world. Scientists use it to investigate the mechanisms that instruct a gene to make a limb or a wing, a hand or a paw, a behavior, even a memory. For Living on Earth, I'm Sherry Quinn in Salt Lake City, Utah.
0: in suburban backyards may generate headlines, but there are plenty of other wild species quietly trying to make a living in the various corners of the sprawling megalopolis along the eastern seaboard. Lisa Couturier is out to capture them with her pen. She loves to write about animals sharing eastern real estate with people, from backyard foxes to high-rise pigeons. Miss Couturier grew up in the Washington, D.C. suburbs and spent much of her post-college years in New York City. The creatures have adapted to these populated areas, she says. It's humans who have yet to adapt to the wildlife. Lisa Couturier's collection of essays is called The Hopes of Snakes and Other Tales from the Urban Landscape, and she joins me from Washington, D.C. Lisa, hello. Hi, Steve. You write about many different urban animals. Uh, In fact, many that uh, we would consider pests. Which of these do you identify with the most?
8: (laughs) I'll say crows. I mean, they're very smart. They're playful. Um, I find them incredibly fun to watch. They have a very high brain-to-body size ratio, similar to that of uh, dolphins and uh, somewhat
0: similar to humans. I'm wondering if you could read to us a portion of your essay uh, about crows.
8: Yeah, sure. Uh, In this, this essay, Banishment of Crows, this particular part, I'm outside with my daughter, and we are going to feed some of the crows Outside in the mornings, Madeline and I hear the cawing of crows, at first far away, echoing through the woods along the river. Slowly they close in, spot us throwing corn, bread, and sunflower seeds into the grass, and land in the tall trees around our cottage. Once a high mound of upturned earth two houses away drew hundreds of crows searching for garbage. The birds covered the roofs of several homes and lined the tree branches. "'Squinting at the crows through sunlight "'transformed them into blousy black scarves of silk, "'a fabric of crow society Madeline and I wished to enter. "'We walked toward them along our stone path, "'and suddenly they fell silent "'as we moved below what now felt like a mountain "'of scrupulous black eyes. "'It was one of those moments when suddenly you feel "'you've crossed over the edge of your civilized world "'and into quite another. "'The tables turned, then, and you are not doing the turning. If you surrender to it, to the moment when perhaps the wild and tamer one, there's a light in all that black, an openness there at the edge of the question, as you wait to see what answer the world will serve you.
0: So you light the crows, and you go on in your book to talk about uh, the big relative of the crow, the vulture. And I come away feeling that these vultures are cultured and of course that's not my perception of 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 the vulture at all i mean the, the popular perception is that hey the vulture is bad news how are people's perceptions of animals like the vulture's different from from uh, the, how you perceive them
8: uh well you know i want to tell one little story too about this about the vulture i was outside in my neighborhood i live right along the potomac river and people often mistake the flying vulture for the flying eagle and every once in a while somebody will ask me and if they're really high up in the air, sometimes it's hard to tell. But this woman said, oh, what's that flying over us? And I looked at it, and I said, it was it was, it was a vulture, most likely. And she said, oh, it's, it's not an eagle? And I said, no, that, that's a vulture. And she said, oh, well, I don't care about that then. You know, how do you unwrap that answer? Well, I don't care about that then. What does it mean that you don't care about a vulture, but you care about an eagle? You know, and I guess by the looks of it, from what they do, if you're just driving along the road and you see a vulture dipping its head into a, uh, a carcass, you know, what they do does look on the surface dirty, ugly, and maybe it is, but, you know, they're essentially the trash people or the trash men of the uh, natural world, in a sense, that they clear the land for us of the, the rotting carcasses.
0: Lisa, one of your essays, you tell the story of encountering a snake on a fairground. Could we hear that now?
8: Okay, so we I was in a um, an agricultural farm park. It was October, which is the time when snakes are, start migrating toward their winter dens. And uh, during all the festivities, this huge six-foot black rat snake starts crossing the landscape, coming through all the people and around the tables and the food.
0: Six and, feet uh, is a big snake.
8: Yeah, well, the black rat snakes are one of the... Giants of the U.S., and they can get up to six feet. And this one was a really long, large snake. People didn't even see that it was there at first. And then slowly, word started to spread that this snake was moving under the tables. And, you know, they got really nervous. And somebody went to run for the park naturalist and to say, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the naturalist took her stick and started poking the stick in front of it, which just served to make the snake more and more upset. What did the snake do? It started to rise up a little bit, and it was biting back at the stick because she kept poking the stick in front of it. And uh, the children, uh, the little boys especially, started shaping their hands into the shape of a a gun and pretending to shoot it. And I didn't even... I I partly thought about it and partly didn't think about it. I knew that it was in trouble in some sense. So I... um, I walked up to it and picked it up, slung it over my arm, sort of near my waist. And the greatest thing, and this part of, isn't in the story actually, is that suddenly when I picked it up and started carrying it back toward the woods, all the children, they just their whole demeanor changed. They thought it was wonderful, and they, they followed me all the way to the woods, and they wanted to touch it and be next to it. They wanted to know about it. It's just interesting when... a an adult sort of, you know, moves in one way versus another. You know, their parents were, stay away from it. It's going to hurt you. And then they saw another adult pick it up and, and take it away to safety. You know, I think that their whole experience of a snake changed on that day. So we took it back to the woods and we put it in down by the woods and it slithered into the woods and everybody was happy.
0: Lisa Couturier, you you call your book The Hopes of Snakes. Um, what do you mean by this title? what do you What do you mean when you say that your life is nuanced by the hopes of snakes?
8: Well, I'm glad that you said that when I believe that non-humans have hopes or have emotions or feelings, that I therefore walk through the world differently because I sense in them something similar that would be in my life, in, in other words if if they need to find warmth or or food. They, in a sense, have a hope or a, a movement towards those things in the same way that I do. So it, I think it changes our relationship with nonhumans when we give them at least some sense of the same sorts of feelings and emotions that we have.
0: Of course, you get some static about this because it seems that uh, anthropomorphism is a necessity in the literary world, but scientists uh, tend to view it as a crime. What do you suppose accounts for that difference?
8: I think that scientists and the scientific world, it, their education, their background is all, um, you know, some sort of mechanistic world, the, the world of Descartes, whereas the literary world, like you said, is a little different. So I think the book somewhat blends those two worlds, um, the literary or the artistic with the scientific, to sort of give some insights into both worlds, you know, about the animals. So basically taking what is real life— scientific, rational side, the other side, and blended them, because that's what life is. We have both of those in our lives every day.
0: Lisa Couturier is an environmental journalist and author of The Hopes of Snakes and Other Tales from the Urban Landscape. Thanks so much for taking this time with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Early each day
8: to the steps of Saint-
0: Just ahead, the truth about gas mileage. Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
3: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Argosy Foundation Contemporary Music Fund, supporting the creation, performance, and recording of new music. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924. On the web at kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, From Vision to Innovative Impact, 75 Years of Philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And just ahead, a car that runs on thin air. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu.
7: might have killed the cat, but it could save the rat. That's according to researchers at Penn State who found that more adventurous female rats survived cancer longer than their more timid counterparts. Scientists studied 80 female rats from birth to death. 93% of these rats developed breast and pituitary tumors over the course of their lives. Researchers believe that rats with different temperaments might also have different ways of coping with disease. To test the theory, they built a miniature playground filled with four An objects like tunnels, bricks, and stones. They then let the rats loose to explore, both as infants and later as adults. Scientists noted which rats were quick to sniff out their surroundings versus those who tended to hang back. They then monitored the stress levels of both groups as an equal number of them developed cancer later in life. The outcome? The curious rats lived for six more months, or 25% longer than the more cautious group. They also exhibited more stress hormones than their more faint-hearted sisters. Scientists suggest that hormone levels could be related to accelerated aging, and that certain personality traits could be an asset in fighting disease. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Jennifer Chu.
0: With the price of gasoline heading higher and higher, the miles-per-gallon sticker affixed to the windows of new cars may be getting a closer look these days from car shoppers. But let the buyer beware. According to the American Automobile Association, road tests show these estimates are likely to be wildly optimistic compared to real-world driving. And joining me now is John Nielsen, Director of Consumer Information and Automotive Repair for the AAA. Hi, John. Hello, Steve. Now, John, I understand that at this moment you're driving a Chevy Cobalt on a test run for us, cruising at about 45 down a two-lane highway near Orlando, Florida. So uh, just what kind of mileage are you getting?
5: Based on what I've done uh, the last two days, my my guess is that I'm about uh, 27 miles to a gallon right now. Uh, I would say uh, 80% of my driving has been highway, and 20% has been stop and go. And if you average all that out, we're probably... I'm going to say 14 to 16% below uh, what the window sticker would say.
0: Now, what kind of assumptions about people's driving habits and conditions under which most of us drive is the Environmental Protection Agency getting wrong?
5: Well, the standards for the EPA uh, figures that we see on the window uh, really are based on on the 1970s, when the speed limit was 55 miles an hour, uh, and when vehicles were much different than they are today and. I dare say that uh, driving conditions were much different than they are today. Most of us travel in rush hour traffic. And uh, other examples, uh, during the EPA test, they don't use the air conditioner. They don't? uh, No, absolutely not. In fact, they they never accelerate to 60 miles an hour faster than 18 seconds. And as we're all aware, trying to merge into traffic at that type of pace uh, would actually be dangerous. And then there's a couple of things that most people don't think about, and that's in cold weather, your fuel economy will always be lower than it is in warm weather.
0: What's the worst case you've found? What's the most egregious uh, gap between what the so-called EPA rating is and the real uh, experience is?
5: I don't have the numbers in front of me, but we've seen, uh, I believe, on a, a trailblazer, I believe we saw roughly 14.7 miles to gallon real world, And the the sticker was, I believe, in the 23, 24 mile per gallon range. That's
0: pretty substantial. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you're going to fill up with the pump, what, 60 percent more often than you thought. It sure is. We'll catch up with John Nielsen again in just a minute or two. But uh, I want to check in now with Connecticut Republican Congresswoman Nancy Johnson. She's co-sponsoring a bill that would change the way the Environmental Protection Agency rates automobile mileage. Congresswoman, uh, what's at stake here?
9: Well, first of all, this is an everyday pocketbook issue. As gas prices go up, I hear more and more from my constituents about what a struggle it is to afford to commute. Skyrocketing gas prices are hitting us hard every day in our pocketbooks. And so when one of my constituents and I were talking about some energy issues and he mentioned this to me, I looked into it and Frankly, it is inexcusable for the government to be misleading consumers with their own tax dollars as they buy a car as to how many miles per gallon the car is going to get.
0: And it's amazing. You walk into the showroom, those numbers are huge. It's the biggest number on the sticker.
9: Well, and they they're, they're put a lot of play on it, see, and with gas, two, uh, $2 a gallon, people care about it. And then to find out that it's so inaccurate, I mean, there's tremendous swings in these numbers. Uh, And uh, the AAA testing has demonstrated that.
0: Can you tell me about this legislation? Uh, What are you hoping to accomplish?
9: Well, it's very simple. We're just directing the EPA to use common, uh, everyday driving habits as the environment in which they test for miles per gallon. They're using 30-year-old mileage tests. Just use... Today's standards of driving. The EPA acknowledges that their figures are wrong. We need our tax dollars to produce honest information uh, to guide people buying a car. Big investment. Miles per gallon is important. It's everyday pocketbook stuff.
0: Let's say, Congresswoman, that your bill goes through, it becomes law. To what extent would it affect the corporate average fuel economy or CAFE standards, which, which govern the fuel efficiencies of cars and light trucks in the U.S.? Well, uh,
9: that's a sort of separate and different issue. Well, I think as we get more honest fuel uh, figures, uh, I think it's going to put pressure on the CAFE debate. But they're very separate. I think if people have honest information about how many miles per gallon they're going to get, they'll choose cars that are more economical from the point of view of fuel usage, and frankly, Detroit will hear that loud and clear.
0: And whose interest is it to keep things the same, uh, the way they are right now?
9: Uh, It may be that Detroit benefits from these very vague and overstated miles-per-gallon figures that we see in the cars. So it's got to be high on the agenda of families, even though it may not be high on the agenda of um, automakers.
0: Why would Detroit benefit from this system?
9: Well, because people think they're getting better miles per gallon than they are, and uh, uh, the auto companies aren't being, therefore, under so much pressure to improve their fuel economy. Detroit could improve the fuel economy in lots of ways, but they they aren't motivated to spend their research and development dollars there to really compete on that basis because... The test provides such misleading information.
0: How do you handicap the odds of your own bill getting through Congress? I think
9: they're pretty high. Yeah? Yeah, because it's, it's, it's so obvious. I mean, this is the kind of bill that if we can get it out there on the floor, it will pass overwhelmingly.
0: Nancy Johnson is a Republican congresswoman from Connecticut. Thanks for taking this time with me today.
9: Nice to be with you. Thanks.
0: John Nilsson from AAA, are you still there? I am. And uh, where are you now? I am on I-4
5: uh... just north of orlando and there is very little traffic i'm traveling at sixty five miles an hour and uh... having a very smooth ride i have the cruise control set
0: so john while the public waits for congress to take action on truth and mileage uh, what kinds of things can we as drivers do to get better mileage out of our cars right now you know realistic things
5: there's a couple of things we can all do quite easily and the first is to check the air pressure in your tires and you'd want to use the specifications that are located in most of our cars, right inside the driver's door. Uh, just maintaining your tire pressure can have an impact on your fuel economy by as much as 10%. The next thing is to make sure that you're not hauling around unnecessary weight. Uh, the golf clubs in the trunk, the uh, uh, the books, bricks, uh, the the uh, cat litter or sand from the uh, uh, from the winter time to keep traction. Get that out. That will make an improvement. From there, it's really Plan your trips. Try to minimize the stop-and-go driving. Plan around uh, rush hour. If you can avoid it, by all means do. And when you do go out, make a, make an entire run at one time. Go by the, the grocery store and go by the dry cleaners
0: uh, and go home. So if it's 10% for uh, tire inflation and maybe a couple of percentage points for unnecessary weight and, and putting these trips together, we can improve our mileage by, what, 20% just by thinking about it? Absolutely
5: percent is is something we could affect.
0: All right. Now, your favorite car for fuel economy of those you've tested over this time?
5: You know, I think the Prius was an outstanding vehicle. A car that that I really was surprised with was the Mercedes E320 CDI diesel, which is a full-size four-door car that I was well over 30 miles to a gallon average. That was a fantastic vehicle. And then in the realm of things that most of us would be in the ballpark to buy, we'd be looking at The Honda Civic did very well. The Ford Escape Hybrid uh, did very well around town as well.
0: John Nielsen is Director of Consumer Affairs for the American Automobile Association. He joined us from the road there outside of Orlando, Florida. Thanks for taking this time today. Steve, it was great to be with you. And drive safely. Thank you. And now another way to save gasoline. Jean-Pierre Mader, an engineer and CEO of Zevcat, a small California company, hopes to soon distribute a new European car that runs not on gas but on compressed air. Mr. Mader first heard about this car from his brother, who's a Swiss auto mechanic. Now, while the air car is still in the development stages, Mr. Mader believes the minicat, as it's called, will one day be tooling up and down the hills of San Francisco. And he's here to share his vision. Welcome. Thank you. Now, give me the basics here. How does a compressed air car, how does that work?
4: Well, it's a fascinating technology. The basic concept behind it is actually uh, very simple physics, and it works with the expansion uh, of air, and that's the, the energy that's released when you expand air. I don't know, um, your listeners, when you, when you actually pump up a tire and you, you touch the hose, you realize it's getting hot. So that's why you compress air in a, in a tire it, that compression process creates heat. And the expansion process is you might have seen when you, when you blow air uh, or hold your hand actually out the window, you feel it's cold, so that when air expands, then it, it loses energy, and that energy loss is actually harnessed in an engine and then and used for work.
0: So tell me about the engine that you would run with compressed air. Is it any different from an ordinary car engine?
4: The the whole concept of a compressed air engine is also um, very comparable um, with what's out today. But, you know, of course, you have to have it a little more sealed than a a gasoline engine because now you work with compressed air and higher pressures.
0: Now, how much energy is really involved and and how much does it cost to fuel it?
4: Um, When you think about uh, the energy, you you kind of can go through a, a calculation, really, how much, how long it would take you to fill your tank, which is going to be, be for, for, uh, between four and five hours if you hook it up to a 220 volts, which most people have at home on their washer and dryer. And it would take about um, 5.5 kilowatts per hour. So you're looking into something like $1.50, uh, $2 for a tank fill.
0: Now, the only published road test that I've seen about your car has it going just four and a half miles on a full tank.
4: That's correct. That was done on the CityCat um, with, without the, the right engine, the final engine. It was a uh, prototype engine, and it was, didn't have the correct tank as well, um, which was a much, much heavier tank than it's going to be in the final version. So weight was above specification. That's why they got much less, less range.
0: Tell me about the prototypes for these cars. What do they look like?
4: The crazy concept is you have a driver in the front, and then you have space in the back uh, where, where people can sit. Um, there, it's very configurable, so you can have a passenger seat and three people in the back, or you can have one person in the front and four people in the back with a rotational dri- uh, driver's seat and, and passenger seat.
0: So you've been for a ride in the air car.
4: I have been for a ride in the air car, and I was, I was just totally surprised by it, and it, it, it's a thing that works.
0: How soon do you think uh, we will be seeing these rolling around?
4: Well, our hope is to see these cars on the road um, as soon as possible, um, which is maybe in a year, 18 months. Um, that is if funding goes through and, and we can actually get into finalizing the car, getting it tested, because there are some issues that uh, need to be worked on, and then you know, get into the step and, and, and market the car and, and get it on
0: the road. Jean-Pierre Mader spoke to me from his office in San Francisco. Jean-Pierre, thanks for taking this time with me to talk today.
4: You're very welcome, Steve. Thank you for having me on your show.
0: With oil prices topping $50 a barrel, the race is on for new sources of oil and gas to keep up with consumer demand. In Congress, efforts to open Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and gas exploration are underway once again. And in Texas, oil rigs are drilling deep and wide, not only in the arid plains, but also in a Houston neighborhood in search of untapped sources of black gold. The thirst for energy has Princeton, New Jersey writer Rich Bliskin and his players wondering how long it will be before energy wildcatters wind up in your front yard.
2: Ah, thanks, hon. Light
3: and sweet, just the way you like it. Mm,
2: couldn't live without it. Is that a helicopter? <laughs> Not in this neighborhood.
8: Roger, there's a chopper in the front yard.
2: What the? Roger Martin
4: of 10 Clampett Court? Yes, that's right. And who are you? And what are all these trucks doing on my front lawn? This is it, fellas. Let's start punching hoes. What's the
9: meaning of this? Who are you?
4: We're Nurk. Pound that baby down, Fred. Nark. There's no drug dealing Nerds? here. It's Nurk, National Energy Recovery Corp, part of the governmental petroleum complex. I don't understand. Nurk satellite says your yard's got the richest vein of light sweet crude this side of the Board of Ed building.
7: Oil? You're drilling for oil
4: in my peony? Mm, plenty of it, ma'am. Government's under pressure to top off those tanks, at least in November. Get
2: that derrick in here, Freddy. Yeah, that's it.
7: My
4: yard isn't an oil field. It's it's a
2: yard. Roger. Uh, now now, see here, NARC or NERC or... Whoa, come. Down. My Hummer. Now you uh,
4: might want to move the vehicles off the worksite, ma'am.
3: It's not a worksite. It's a mulch bed.
4: Hey, Raj. Oh, not Drysdale. I hear you're sitting on a gold mine. What? They found coal under Furman's pool. Smithers has tungsten. Oh my God, that's awful. Awful. They're rich. Do you have any idea what they're paying for the drilling leases?
7: Drilling leases? Honey. Zip it, Roger. What are these leases you're talking about?
4: Let's just say their brokers are suddenly taking their calls. Say, what happened to the Hummer? Hey, hey, Mr. Energy Man. But, sweetheart, the peonies. Get that wreck out of there, Freddie. Honey! Cut her up, drag her out, and let's get the goop out of the ground. Move it,
3: move it, move it. Let's go!
0: A little satire courtesy of Rich Pliskin and his players of Princeton, New Jersey. We leave you this week with a promise. Here in the Northeast, we still have more snow than we can shake a shovel at. But as those of you and much of the rest of the Northern Hemisphere already know, spring is coming. The Red Sox, excuse me, the world champion Boston Red Sox, open their season in just about three weeks. And for those of you who can't wait, well, here, courtesy of Lang Elliott and Ted Mack, is another harbinger of spring up north, the Robins. on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Steve Gregory, Susan Shepard, and Jeff Young, with help from Jenny Cecil Moore and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Katie Oliveri and Katie Zemsef. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Our technical director is Paul Wabreck. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at livingonearth.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and cultured soy. Ten percent of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the Earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation.
0: This is NPR,
9: National Public Radio.